Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. This morning, we're continuing in our study of Genesis. And we're looking at the life of Joseph. And we are in Genesis chapter 40, if you want to turn in your Bibles to that chapter. Now, actually, we first met Joseph back in Genesis 37. At the time, he was a 17-year-old boy, and you'll probably remember, he was a little brat. He really was. He was tattled on his brothers at the time. And he would do what he could to get out of work. And he sort of walked around pridefully and like, look, I've got this really neat jacket that you guys don't have. And his brothers, there was no love between them. In fact, when he went away and got a chance to escape, or actually went to go see his brothers about 60 miles away from home, the first thing that came to their mind is this is our opportunity to kill that little brat. That's not good when that's what your own flesh and blood brothers are thinking. Now, thankfully, uh, God intervened through the mind of Judah, and he had a little better of an idea. Instead of killing him, let's actually just sell him. Let's sell him into slavery to this caravan of Ishmaelite traders who were coming by. And at the end of chapter 37, we found Joseph. Everything had changed. He had gone from being the favored son of his dad off to Egypt where he was sold on an auction block. Now, last week when we picked up his story in chapter 39, he had been sold, we saw, to a man named Potiphar. Potiphar was essentially the head of the secret service in ancient Egypt is the rough equivalent. He started out as a bottom slave, but over 11 years, he actually sort of worked his way up the food chain and to become the head of Potiphar's entire household. He was 27, 28 years old. The Bible says he was extremely good-looking, extremely handsome, well-built, and single. And he spent uh, his days around Mrs. Potiphar. And Mr. Potiphar spent way too much time at the office, and soon she began to develop affections for him. In fact, she became what we call the original desperate housewife. And she made multiple passes on him. She literally tried to rape him, and he ended up running for his life. And as a spurned woman, she actually went from madly in love with him to trying to frame him and accuse him. And if I can't have him, nobody else will, was sort of her motto. She accused him of rape, and he ended up falsely accused in prison. Now, um, it seems like he was there for a while. In fact, you think about this. In chapter 37, the first trial in Joseph's life were his brothers selling him into slavery. Genesis chapter 39, the next trial in his life was Mrs. Potiphar falsely accusing him of rape and ending up in the dungeon. What is the next trial we're going to see in chapter 40 today? And here's what I have to tell you. It's nothing new at all. It's the same trial he was in in chapter 39. He's in the dungeon. He's in a pit. And here's the problem. He just doesn't get out. It goes on and on, and on, 
This trial just seems to never end. He did the right thing, but it's like he's done the wrong thing, and it just doesn't stop. Now, maybe some of you can relate to Joseph this morning, because you too are in the midst of a trial, a trial that just doesn't seem to end. Some of you, I know, are in a difficult marriage. And you've been saying, God, why don't you just save my husband? Why don't you just save my wife? And when she has that born-again experience and the changes of her heart, I know our marriage will work out. I know it will be restored. But for whatever reason, God has not brought that about. And the trial just goes on and on. Others of you experience that when it comes to looking for a job. You've, you've lost the job. You've maybe the company you worked for is downsized. And now you're sending out resume after resume after resume. And nothing seems to work out. The trial just won't seem to end. God, why don't you come to the answer? Others of you I know are single. And you would desperately love to find the right person. You would desperately love to be married it seems like all your friends are, but you're not. And so you get into a relationship and you have high hopes for it. And it's going to come together and then right in your fingers it starts to disintegrate. The phone calls stop. The interest wanes. And you go back to the trial that you've had before. And you get on your knees and you say, God... Why in the world do you leave me in this long-term trial that just never seems to end? You're not alone. Because I think Joseph in this chapter is asking the very same questions. And as we go through this chapter, we'll find some of the reasons why God lets us, his children, endure long-term trials in our life. And how God uses them to shape us and mature us for His honor and His glory. Let's go ahead and jump into the text. We'll begin on your notes, and we're going to read the first four verses of chapter 40. It says, Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them, and they continued for some time in custody. Notice this little phrase that's repeated, for some time. The idea is that this is a long time. Joseph has been in prison for a crime he didn't commit for a long time. And can you picture what it was like? God, why won't you come to the rescue? I've been here a while. Where are you in the midst of all this situation? And when after it's been a while, along comes two high-profile prisoners. The first one is known as the cupbearer. Now, let me explain to you what a cupbearer is. This is not a guy who gives Pharaoh a Dixie cup of water. His job, actually, is to make sure that whatever 
Pharaoh drinks is of highest quality and highest purity, and he's responsible to make sure there is no poison in that cup. So not only does he sort of oversee the whole growing of the grapes process and the harvest and the fermentation and have that big picture control over things, but he literally sips from the cup that Pharaoh would drink from. So if it was poisoned or anything wrong was it, he died and he experienced it first before Pharaoh would. What you need to understand is that in this culture, a highly trusted person that you trusted with your very life was your cupbearer. Because poisoning uh, a, the king or a pharaoh was a common means of assassinating the ruler. So the guy you trusted with your life was this guy. That's the level of importance and authority he has. The second guy who comes in is known as the chief baker. And his job is to make the king's cupcakes. Actually, he makes more than just the king's cupcakes. Uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics, that we've learned this, that in Egypt they actually had 37 different varieties of cake and 57 different varieties of bread. But in a similar way, he's responsible for all the carbohydrates the king ate. And make sure it was the highest quality. Make sure it was the highest purity. And make sure it was good stuff, not poison stuff. I mean, you don't want to have a donut laced with some poison because that could be the end of Pharaoh. So his responsibility was to make sure everything is healthy and everything is just right. Now, apparently what has happened, doesn't say it directly in the text, but it's implied, the Pharaoh had some kind of a meal that involved bread and wine, and he became sick. And there's suspicion that somebody obviously was trying to bump him off in the process by putting something in the food. And because the chief cupbearer and the chief baker are responsible for what he has served, and they don't know who did it, they are both stuck in prison. While the CSI crime investigation scene unfolds, and they figure out, you know, who done it. So that is the background we have in, in this situation. The other thing, we, the character we need here, is the guy who is the captain of the guard. Do you remember who the captain of the guard is? We met him last week. It's Potiphar. Now here we discover something else that's interesting. Remember how Joseph used to work in Potiphar's household? And he was in charge of everything in his household? until Mrs. Potiphar accused him of rape, and so he was put in prison? Well, the guy who directs what prison he goes into would be Potiphar. And Potiphar put him into the very prison that he's in charge of. And so Joseph is still working for Potiphar, except not in his house, but he's working for Potiphar in his prison. You notice what's happening now is that Potiphar is still putting Joseph in charge of everything. Even, and you know he's pretty good because when you are a prisoner in prison and they're having you attending the prisoners, obviously you're a pretty trustworthy guy when they give you the keys. By the way, just so you know, I don't think this is a very pleasant prison because at times in the narrative he calls it a dungeon. Sometimes it's also translated a pit. Um, 
This is the same word that was used to describe the well or the cistern where his brothers threw him underground in chapter 37. So if you want to picture this, picture this like you are put into a, some kind of a cave. You are in some kind of underground situation where you don't even see the, life, the light of day for years. I mean, that's pretty harsh. The other way to picture this is looking at Psalm 105, which gives us a little bit more of what it was like. And it talks about Joseph having a collar of iron around his neck when he was in prison and fetters on his feet. So picture him with a heavy metal collar and chains around him. That's what it is like. And yet, he's still put in charge of attending other prisoners. The story continues to unfold. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled, and he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, We've had dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Well, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. What we find in this paragraph is that Joseph successfully avoided two of the great temptations that every single one of us will face when we go through periods of long-term suffering. Here is the first thing that Joseph avoided. When enduring long-term suffering, don't stop caring about others. Don't stop caring about others. Because isn't this what happens? I mean, Joseph, he went through, it says, a long period of suffering, being falsely accused in the dungeon with a child with a collar around his neck, a heavy collar. And if anybody had a right to a pity party, it would be Joseph. If anybody had a right to just whine and complain and only care about himself, it would be him. But that's not what he does. You notice that. He actually cares about these prisoners he's put in charge of. And he's listening to the needs of these prisoners he's put in charge of. You see, what happens is when we start to go through long-term suffering, it is very easy for each one of us to turn in on ourselves and just think about and care about our pain rather than the pain that other people are experiencing. Let me tell you how you know if this is happening to you. When you end up in a conversation with somebody who is going through a hard time and they just start sharing their hurt with you, if you come back and say, oh yeah, I know that, that happened, wait till I tell you what happened to me, and all of a sudden you start talking about yourself, and you're not talking about yourself in a way that you're trying to empathize with them, but you're using this as a green light to just start talking about yourself and not even listening to them anymore. And all of a sudden, the direction of the conversation you realize is switched. It's not about listening to their pain, but it's just an opportunity for you to talk about your pain. You see, what's happened is 
You've turned in on yourself. Your long-term suffering has started to make you numb to the sufferings of others. In fact, you don't even really care about the sufferings of others. All you want to do is an opportunity to talk about yourself. See, Joseph's here. He's avoids that. He's avoided that because he honestly listens and cares about them. You see, the Holy Spirit, it doesn't have to be this way. The Holy Spirit can take our suffering and our long-term suffering that we go through, and what He can do is He takes that suffering and He tenderizes our heart. So we don't become consumed with ourselves. We actually become more caring about others. And here's how you know when this has happened. When you hear about people who are going through hard times in their life, instead of talking about you and your suffering, you just start to listen. And you see it, and you feel a tear in the corner of your eye because you know what it's like to go through suffering that just doesn't end. And instead of talking about yourself, you want them to talk about themselves because you actually care. You see, the Holy Spirit doesn't have to make your long-term suffering turn in on you. The Holy Spirit can take and transform you into a much sweeter, caring, and compassionate person. And that's what's happened with Joseph. Remember at age 17, was he selfish? Was he a young bratty kid? Yes. Here at age 28, he cares about others even though he is suffering unjustly. So that's the first temptation in long-term suffering to avoid. The second temptation to avoid in long-term suffering is not to lose your faith in God. Remember this. He was falsely accused. He was sent by his brothers. Oh, actually, he was sent by his brothers into slavery. He was falsely accused by Mrs. Potiphar. He's been sitting in the dungeon for a long period of time. God had given him these dreams in the past, Dreams where his brothers would be bowing down to him. Dreams where his mother and father would be bowing down to him. But none of those dreams seem to be coming true. In fact, if anybody should feel like it's time to give up on God and walk away, it would be him. But you see, Joseph hasn't given up on God, has he? In fact, as soon as he hears that they have dreams, he says, hey, Interpretations belong to God. Tell me your dreams, and maybe God will allow me to interpret them for you. Still has confidence in God in the midst of a long, drawn-out suffering situation. So those are the two temptations to avoid. And then the story continues. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine were three branches. And as soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation, the three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. 
For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pits. The cupbearer has his dream. One vine, three branches, they blossom and they move into grapes in almost no time flat. He squeezes them, puts them into the cup, and puts them into Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph says, it's real clear. The three branches are three days. In three days, you will be restored and put the cup back into Pharaoh's hand as you did before. And here is where it's interesting. Because the center of the narrative here has sort of the point of this chapter. There is some interesting words. The one is remember me in Hebrew. And the, the other word that is very important is this, where he says, show me the kindness to mention me to, to Pharaoh. This is a special word in Hebrew. It's the word hesed. The kindness here means sort of like love your neighbor kindness, but it's not love your neighbor in words. It's love your neighbor with actually actions. Don't just talk about it, but do something about it. Do something about my situation. Show me some love. One of the classic places you see it is Micah chapter 6, verse 8, where it says this, Do justice to love hesed and to walk humbly with God. Our job is to love other people faithfully, not just with words, but with actions. And here is where it gets really interesting. This word hesed, or steadfast love, is used to describe not just the way we're supposed to love others, but it's used to describe the way God always loves us. That God has bound himself to faithfully love us. And not just, not just words, but with actions. Even when we sin, even when we are unfaithful to God, he is always faithful to us. One of my favorite places where this same word is used is in the book of Lamentations. Because what happens in that book is Jerusalem is destroyed. And it looks like the world is falling apart. And there's nothing good to look for, nothing good to hope for in the future. But where do God's people look and what do they hold on to? God's hesed, his steadfast, faithful love that will always be there. Lamentations chapter 3. It says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end, and they are new every morning. And great is your faithfulness, God. Here is Joseph's request to the cupbearer. Would you please be faithful and show me some loving kindness and get me out of this dungeon? I don't deserve to be here. I didn't do anything that would mean that I should be here at all. Please be faithful and come to my rescue. And here's the question. Will the cupbearer, who is considered one of the most trustworthy men in the entire kingdom, the man who holds Pharaoh's life in his hand by guarding his drink, will he be reliable and get Joseph out of this pit?
That is what we'll find out as the story continues. When the chief baker saw the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, Well, I also had a dream, and there were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket were all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, Well, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. He's going to lift it up from you and then hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. If you want to picture this as like three baskets stacked one on top of the other is what he dreams of. And the birds are just pecking away at these uh, carbohydrate goodies that are on his head. And he says, what's this mean? And Joseph says, the three baskets are three days, and in three days you are going to die because you did not protect Pharaoh with the food that you served him. In fact, why the cupbearer's head will be lifted up in the sense of being restored, your head will be lifted up and it's going to be hung right off your own body because you are the one who's the guilty party in the poisoning conspiracy. And let's see how it unfolds. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all of his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted. And notice this. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. A couple things to mention for you here. Three days into this is Pharaoh's birthday party. And it happened exactly as Joseph had said. Some people, by the way, like to point out the fact that this is the only place in the Bible that you find a birthday party talked about. And I've heard some people say, well, look, in this birthday party, somebody got killed. We shouldn't celebrate birthday parties. No, you're laughing. I've had people say this to me, and I'm like, you know, no, no, no. Please, celebrate birthday parties. Make people feel loved. Make people feel special. That's biblical. Just don't kill anybody. Okay? It's, it's that simple. You know, that's not a present. So, now here's what I want you to do. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. I've talked to the cupbearer. I've served him faithfully for a long time in prison. I was there every day tending to his needs. I even, God allowed me to interpret his dream. This guy is the, one of the most faithful, trustworthy men in the kingdom. Surely he will tell Pharaoh my story. Surely I will be released. And could you see him sleeping that first night, waiting to hear steps coming down the, hot, the hall? And yet they walked right by his door. And those hours turned into days. Those days turned into weeks, the weeks into months, the months into years, because Pharaoh's cupbearer simply forgot, forgot to show him 
steadfast love. This is one of the big points right here in this chapter. And it's here. People may not show steadfast love towards us, but God always will. People who are, you think are so reliable, who will always come to your help in your time of need, let's face it, they're human, they're going to forget, they're going to fail, but here's the thing to remember, God will not forget, He will not fail, and He will come to your help in time of need. Let me show you, in fact, right here, one of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 136, and what it wants to drive into our head is that God is not like other people. Other people fail us. Other people don't always love us. But God does. Look at this. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, and His hesed, His steadfast love, will endure forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for His hesed, His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him alone does great wonders for His steadfast love endures forever. And then it comes a little further and it goes down to the end of the psalm and it says this, It is He who remembered us in our low estate. Is that Joseph? And His steadfast love endures forever. And he rescued us from our foes, not the cupbearer, but God, for his steadfast love endures forever. 26 verses of Psalm 136 saying that God is not like the cupbearer. His love is not just words. His love is actions, and no matter how long you're going through a long-term trial, no matter how forgotten you feel, God has not forgotten you. God is trustworthy, and He has not forgotten you at all. So that's the first point out of this text. The second point is this, and this is a harder one to swallow, but it's true. God allows the right amount of suffering to mature our faith and shape our character for the work He has called us to do. God allows the right amount of suffering in our life to mature our character and shape us for the work He's called us to do. Maybe you can relate to Joseph this morning because you are going through a long-term time of suffering. And you are saying, God... I think this should have been over with a while ago. Why won't you release me? You've tried talking to people, hoping that people would solve your problem, and they have failed you, and they have let you down. And Here's the thing to realize. God allows suffering in the lives of His children. That's you and me. But here's why He allows suffering. Suffering is a tool in God's hand that He uses to mature us and to prepare us. The suffering, especially the long-term suffering that we face, is not purposeless. It is always purposeful. God has a reason for allowing, for jo <laughs> for allowing Joseph to endure these difficult times. These difficult times are preparing him 
to be the leader that God wants him to be when he gets to age 30. If he hadn't gone through these difficult times, he would still be the childish, selfish brat of age 17, 13 years later. Let me look what the Scripture says about this. Not only that, but we actually rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering will produce endurance, endurance will produce character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. When he becomes ruler, or second in command over Egypt, he's going to have people that are going to backstab him. But it's not a new situation. He experienced it when his own brothers did it to him. When he is a single, good-looking man who is second in command of all of Egypt, how many young women do you think will want to worm their way into his life? A lot. But he's experienced temptation that way, and he's experienced beating it and running from it. How many people do you think will fail him under his charge and will simply forget to do the duty that they promised? It's not new. He's experienced it with the cupbearer when it went through that, when it went through that part of his life. You see, God uses suffering to mature us and prepare us. And if we go through a long-term, difficult time of suffering, all I can say is God is preparing us for a very important and special work that He wants us to do. Now, let me just ask you another question as we begin to wrap this up. If you were to look at this story of the cupbearer and the baker, which one do you think is us? The truth is that we're, cup, we're bakers. We are. Each one of us is bakers. Each one of us has sinned against our master. Each one of us ultimately deserves eternal, conscious, never-ending punishment. But because our God has incredibly steadfast love to us that didn't let us go, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place, for our sins. And here's the really cool part, that even when we fail Him again and again because of His hesed, His steadfast love, He still doesn't let us go. Isn't that great? And so we can be guaranteed that when God comes into His kingdom, He will remember us. We will be there with Him. It's not going to be like the cupbearer and simply forgets about you. Well, not only will God remember us, even when we're going through times of long-term suffering, not only will God remember us when He comes into His kingdom because of His steadfast, faithful love to us, but God tells us to remember Him. Once a month, we like to celebrate the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a time for us to go back and remember what Jesus has done for us, that He died in our place for our sins. And for us to go back and remember that everything we have is because of God's steadfast love through Christ. 
Now, here at Crosswinds, we practice open communion. That means if you're not a member of the church, but you know and love Jesus Christ, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us as it is offered up in the next few minutes. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are not like the cupbearer. The cupbearer who appeared to be a man of such good character and responsibility, yet simply forgot and left Joseph in prison. But because of your steadfast love, that you do not forget about us, no matter where we are, no matter what we're going through, no matter how long it seems to last, and it feels like you've forgotten, we know you haven't. And I thank you that the long-term sufferings in our life are never purposeless. But you have a good reason that someday when we are with you that we'll understand, even though we could never understand it now, we'll see how you use the very sufferings in our life to mature our character and to prepare us for the very work you've called us to do, just like you used Joseph's sufferings to prepare him to be the man who orchestrated the savings of literally millions of people. Father, we thank you also that we can celebrate your supper. And as we hold the bread and, and we drink the cup, Lord, we ask that you would just bring us back to your steadfast love that you promised never to leave us, never to forsake us, and you are the one who has totally saved us, and there's nothing we can do to add to it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.
that one more time. Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Shall we take together? And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant, which is in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Shall we take together? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your hesed love, your steadfast, faithful love. Even when we're not faithful to you, you are faithful to us. You're not like the cupbearer who simply just forgets about us when we're in our times of suffering. And Jesus, we thank you that you're faithful to us. And we thank you that we know that our suffering has a purpose, and that you will have a good reason in it. Just as your suffering on the cross had a good purpose that was not able to be seen till after you rose from the grave, that your sufferings with the purpose of redeeming us and saving our lives. Someday, we will see the purpose of our long-term sufferings. And we'll look back and we'll see what you have done with us and through us. And we will declare that you are good. Your plan is good. Even though now we may not understand it fully. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.